What's the one thing that hinders you from being a fully devoted follower of Jesus? What is the one thing that hinders you of being a fully devoted follower of Jesus? Because I think that's an absolutely a tough question. Another way to rephrase it is, what is the one thing that holds you back when it comes to serving Jesus with your whole heart, with your life? Think about that. Now, what we're doing is we're continuing on in the book of Mark. And uh, today we find ourselves in Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17 to 31. And so if you have your Bibles on your phones, just please open it up. You can also follow along on the screen. But our story begins with a man that is desperate for Jesus. And it goes like this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a fairly well-known story. Here we're reading about a young man. Matthew and Luke talk about the same story. And there they give us a little bit more insight uh, that this young man was also a ruler. Uh, Or here in this story, we read about a man. He's a man. In Matthew and Luke, he's young and he's a ruler. So we have a young ruler who's also very wealthy. Because all three of them tell us about his wealth. Three weeks ago, Pastor Andrew addressed the passage that immediately precedes our text. And it ends with Jesus saying this. Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And so this young man in today's text was apparently absent for that teaching, right? And so there's a few things here that are interesting when we look at the scriptures. And first we notice that there's a sense of urgency in this man as he runs towards Jesus. He throws himself on his knees and he kneels before Jesus. Get that picture in your head. And he calls Jesus a good teacher and he finally asks him, you know, how do I inherit eternal life? And again, here we believe he's a wealthy, wealthy, a young, wealthy man who has a position of political power because he's a ruler and he runs to jesus um, and, and again jesus has sort of become this outlaw rabbi that the pharisees and the sadducees are after and they're trying to get rid of him and so publicly this guy kneels before jesus which is a a picture of needy neediness it's a sign of humility it's a sign of respect And everything looks very good at this moment. And it looks like it's the right man doing the right thing, asking the right question, until we read the rest of the passage. Then he calls Jesus good teacher. And as we look into the scriptures, we see that Jesus is very quick to respond. He says, well, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And many people, when they look at this passage of Scripture, they wonder and they ask the question, why did Jesus say this to this young man? Some of the liberal commentators have said that this is a clear occasion where Jesus himself denies that he is God. Hmm. And their argument goes like this. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. And so in asking that question, why do you call me good? He is in effect denying that he is good don't call me good you know i'm i'm not good only god is good and i'm not god that's basically what some people are saying jesus is saying here if you hear that interpretation i would actually say you take it with a grain of salt because that's not what the scripture is saying 
What Jesus is actually doing in this passage, in that line, is making a claim to deity. What he's really saying to this young man is, look, why do you call me good? What, what do you mean by good? And if you understand what good means, you'll understand that only God is good. This is basically what Jesus is saying. Therefore, you only have two options. If Jesus is just a teacher, then you can't really call him good because he's just like every other human being. He's fallen. You know, he's less than righteous. And he would basically say, look, I'm not that good man that you say I am. So if I'm just a teacher, the adjective doesn't apply to me. And if it does apply to me, if you're saying that I am good, then I'm much, much more than a teacher. I'm the son of God. That's what he's trying to communicate. And you're going, well, that's pretty wordy there for his response. Just wait, because it begins to unravel as the story goes on. Because there's really no in-between there. You can't ever say that Jesus was a noble, wise, good teacher. How many times have you heard, oh, he was just a really good teacher. Because really, Jesus, what he's doing is declares himself that he's God. This is actually a valid interpretation, and it's certainly in line with all the rest of the claims of Scripture concerning who Jesus is and his claims about himself. And so it is apparent that he's, he's probing this young man. He's searching to see if he is willing to investigate. He's, he's searching to see if this young man is willing to learn. In other words, Jesus is trying to see if this guy is teachable. And so there's a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? It's interesting because human nature is such that we think that we have to do something when it comes to our faith, right? Doing is something that makes us feel good. All the other religions are spelt D-O. Christianity, however, is spelt D-O-N-E. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. That's what I talked about last week, Easter Sunday. And so that eternal life is not achieved. It's not something that we do. It is received it's a gift ephesians uh ephesians uh, 2 8 and 9 for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and it is not from yourselves it is the gift of god not by works so that no one can boast in other words our faith is given to us it's a gift from god it doesn't matter what we do and interesting enough rather than receiving the kingdom in complete dependence as a child which pastor andrew was talking about this guy wants to know what he can do to inherit such life this eternal life and it's actually a very odd question when we begin to break it down because if you think about it one can rarely do anything for an inheritance you can't by definition, an inheritance is given, right? Now, Jesus is about to ask in an indir indirect way to this young man, are you teachable? Are you willing to investigate, to think through something? And he will test them on the final quality of which is, works its way out, which is obedience. Now, Jesus responds to this guy's question. He says, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, and honor your father and mother. 
And so basically what Jesus is saying is, you know, what has God said to you and have you obeyed? Again, context. Jewish man. Growing up in the Jewish system of, uh, of uh, religion. He, Jesus is saying, do you know the law? Are you obedient? Are you faithful? Are you following through? He gives six of the ten commandments to this young man. And those six commandments has everything to do with mankind's relationship with each other this way. And so Jesus is testing him. He's talking to him. And these commandments are on how do we treat other people? And this young man's response is beautiful. Because he says without hesitation, he says almost in a big claiming way, he says, teacher, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Now, sometimes I read stuff like that and I go, yeah, right. You know, this guy thought he was doing good because he kept all the commandments. And again, remember, religion loves checklists, all right? But eternal life is not about a list of rules. It's about this relationship. And Jesus summed the commandments up, if you remember. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. We're all sinners and we can't save ourselves. Nobody has ever lived this perfect life but Jesus. Jesus alone is good and he is God. And when you think about it, salvation is, and I'll say this carefully, easy for us because Jesus did it all. All we have to do is trust him. Now notice that Jesus doesn't say, well, you... You know, looks at the young guy and goes, yeah, right. And he doesn't say, you know, you're keeping from something for me. I don't believe what your answer. I don't believe anything he says. He doesn't imply that at all, which is fascinating. He doesn't imply that this young man is lying to him because I think in our culture, when we get that response, that's the first thing. It's like, yeah, right. He doesn't even point out that maybe this young man is deceiving himself in any way, but rather Jesus' response basically seems to accept and is satisfied with this young man's response. Also notice that Jesus didn't respond as he did to the hypocrites earlier throughout the scriptures. We know that Jesus hated hypocrisy and he often rebuked it. But here in Mark, Mark says this, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus loved him because he recognized the man's sincerity. Here he had somebody who was an open heart. He was moral. He was an excellent person. And Jesus is observing him and he's hearing his answers. And, and, and he loves this gentleman because he had these qualities that made it possible to enter the kingdom. But he had one more thing to say to him. And Jesus issues a call to discipleship and he issues a challenge to the young man to recognize that there's a price to follow. You know, it's interesting as I was studying this and just going over this passage that, uh, you know, different thoughts come to my mind. And how many times have I run into people that are not Christians, but they're fabulous moral people. Fabulously moral people. And that's the picture that we have before us. The guy did everything right. He treated people the way they should be treated, right? And so Jesus looks at him and he offers him a simple, 
yet imposing prescription of five words. Go, sell, give, come, follow. All five are very important. And what Jesus was asking of was a radical turning, a radical way of thinking for this young man. He looks at him. And remember, he loves him. There, there's a sense of tenderness in this conversation between Jesus and this young man. And he says, one thing you lack. Because just before he said, I've done it all. But Jesus says, no, no, no. One thing you lack. Go, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now, what's Jesus doing here? Is he con uh, contradicting the gospel? Is he saying, look, the way to achieve eternal life is by keeping the commands. So you go out and keep the commandments and you'll be okay. Is that what Jesus is doing? On the surface, it, it sort of appears to be a little bit confusing, but what Jesus is doing is actually the opposite. Jesus isn't sharing a path of works-based religion, but this man had a problem. He thought of himself as a keeper of the commandments, but when you look at it, he was actually breaking the first commandment. Again, the first six, the commandments that Jesus laid out had to do with our relationship with others. But what's the first commandment? The first commandment has to do with our relationship with God. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus is using the law, because this is what it was called, the law in one of the ways that the law was intended to be used. Uh, and in one of the ways that it was designed to function. The law is God's ultimate revealer, revealer of sin. It, it, it's the mirror of the law that we begin to get an accurate view of who we are. Because I think all of us, we would like to think that nobody has a more accurate view of us than us. Right? Don't tell me what I am. I know who I am. And the fact of the matter is we all have places of distortion and delusion. We all do. We all have places of distortion and delusion in the way that we think of ourselves. We're very much aware of it, whether we talk about it or not. I call it my dark side. And so the law is the mirror that we can look in and we can begin to see ourselves as we actually are. And we begin, can begin to be aware of the depth of our need, that we need God. And so we all need to remember that that Jewish thought was that riches were understood as a, as a sign of God's blessing. We see that. It was a, a, um, as well as long life, as well as many children. These were God's blessings in the Old Testament. Riches provided security, obviously. They brought enjoyment. They enabled people to do good works and that they might earn more blessings from God. And Jesus knows exactly where this conversation is going. He knows exactly what is operating in the heart of this man. And the problem with this man is not his performance. The problem with this man is not his behavior. The problem with this man is the worship of his heart. And Jesus knows that this man's heart is ruled by something other than God. Jesus knows that this man, you know, he, 
He doesn't worship the creator. He worships creation. And Jesus knows something that all of us should remember. Is that sin in its essence is idolatrous. As a matter of fact, if you go to the book of Romans in the New Testament, it's a treaty. It's an exegesis of sin and what sin does to us. And we read in Romans 1 verse 25 that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. See, we tend to love the physical world more than we love the one who created it. All of us do. We tend to have hearts that are ruled by something that we can see or touch or taste or experience rather than God himself. And that's what sin does to us. You see, idolatry and operating in that early moment in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve would rather have physical pleasure. Let's taste this fruit. They would rather have autonomy from God, right, than have God. And that's the nature of sin. And so Jesus in this conversation, he knows where he's going. And now what Jesus is saying is, look, you have the qualities it takes to enter the kingdom. You're simple, you're direct, you're teachable, you're obedient. That is, you have been. But now let's see how much you've actually retained of those qualities. How obedient are you? How far are you willing to carry this willingness to act upon what you know to be true. And here's the hard part. Obedience. You remember, you've heard me saying it over and over again. Obedience is God's love language. Obedience is God's love language. And unfortunately, this man's wealth was his idol. And so his priorities were the problem. Not his possessions per se. God doesn't speak against people having money. But he warns against money having us. Money's a great servant, but it's a very poor master. And in this passage, wealth is the thing that's holding this man back. And though this man felt he had been faithful in how he treated others, Jesus' demand on his life made it obvious that he was out of step with God. He was not following the true God. He was following the money God, basically is what it was. And so Jesus said, get rid of everything. And who does he say to follow? Me. Notice he doesn't tell the man to follow God. He told the man to follow him. And so to Jesus, getting the first commandment right meant following him. Jesus is God. He's the only one worth following in the kingdom. And so to have life, God must be first. Jesus must be first. And that's that whole twist in the story. And then we read at this, the man's face fell. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. And so this guy finds this demand very too hard to follow and he leaves Jesus. And actually, this is the only occasion in Mark's gospel in which Jesus is calling somebody and the person responds by walking away. And the disciples, like all of them, they heard Jesus call to them to follow him. And what happens with the disciples? And we went through this. They dropped everything to follow him. 
They didn't know where he was going, but they just knew that they were going to follow. And others joined the parade along the way that we read in the scripture in response to Jesus' teachings or in response to his healings. People were following. Now a man who, in some significant ways, seemed more genuine. This guy seemed genuine. He seemed earnest. He had this piety. You know, more than others, he approaches Jesus. Asking for instruction, asking for guidance, only to turn away when discovered the cost of following Jesus. Would you walk away sad if you had great possessions? If you just won $100,000 on the Tim Hortons roll up the wind rim and drink dishwater coffee, would you go away sad? Of course not. You'd celebrate. But this young man went away sad. Why? Because he had great possessions. And of course, the answer is that he could see that there was no way for him to serve two masters. And Jesus, in that marvelous way of his, had pierced right to the heart of this young man's life, right to the very deep things of his spirit. He had shown him that he was owned by another God. This young man who had everything, money and power and youth could give him, nevertheless, he had wanted something far more important. And he saw it. I think he, he had a glimpse of, of, of it. And he wanted it. He wanted that eternal life. His question was genuine. Uh, and it's not just living forever. But it's a quality of life that I think he knew that he lacked. It was an emptiness in his, that his spirit was not full. But he knew that Jesus could fill it. He knew that Jesus had the answer and he wanted it. But he's sad because he also knew that at the words of Jesus. That he had to give up his wealth in order to have it. And he knew that he couldn't do both. And this is why he went away, sad, because he had great wealth. And the deeper meaning is more than the young man selling everything and giving to the poor. The gift of eternal life, this thing that we call salvation, is a treasure not to be earned by self-denial or giving away material goods, but it is to be received by following Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. And in giving away his wealth, this young man would have removed the obstacle that kept him from trusting Jesus. Scripture says, and Jesus looked around at his disciples and he said this, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, just an aside that I'm not going to... First he says the rich, and then he says children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Just keep that in your head. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for somebody who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were even more amazed. And they said to each other, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So the guy walks away. Jesus calls him, says, follow me, but this is what you should do. And he just says, I can't do it. Forget this. And he walks away. And Jesus turns around. He begins to speak to his disciples. You've got to think, this guy's already walking away. And he reflects on the hindrance that wealth can be. That it can keep some people from entering the kingdom. And the first is the most important note that Jesus had and has wealthy followers. I've got to tell you that. 
In Jesus' kingdom, every class of income bracket can find hope and truth in the gospel. Jesus did not think wealth could only be acquired by trampling down others, nor did he think uh, even having wealth was a sin. It wasn't a sin. But wealth can be dangerous. And so Christians who are wealthy need the Spirit's help and great maturity to navigate their wealth. Because with wealth, let's, let's be honest, the heart is tempted to fixate on the world alone. Wealth can also tempt us to think, you know, everything good can be bought with a price. But the best things in life, love, joy, peace, are not guaranteed for those with financial means. You can't buy love. You can't buy joy. You can't buy peace. And so when you look into the scriptures, we see that the Bible says that wealth is a test. If your heart can navigate wealth and still be devoted to God, you've passed the test. The Bible says that wealth is a responsibility because we're stewards of everything that God has entrusted in our care. And the disciples couldn't believe what they heard from Jesus. They grew up in a society that believed that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. And Jesus added, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Notice that Jesus did not say God can save anyone. It's true, but it's not his point. He said, with God, all things are possible. With God. And in those words, God would have joined up in empowering this young man to abandon everything to follow Jesus. And I'm reflecting on this story in my office on how so easy it is for us to look on others around us who have more money than us. And what's the first thing that we default? We look at them and say, well, this story is for them. Right? Because you know somebody who's got a little bit more than you, and you know this story is for them. When in reality, this story is for all of us. Especially because we live in one of the most wealthy nations on earth. Let me just say, it's all relative. It's all relative. Look around. Somebody's always bet more better off than you. And yet you're better off than some other people. Even in our own city. Maybe even on your own street. The story is for all of us. We are the rich young ruler in this story. And we're all asked to look at our heart and see if we're focusing on the creator or his creation. All of us. That's the beauty of the story. You know, we can't read the scripture without it speaking to us. And it should be speaking to you as it speaks to me. And let's not minimize Jesus' language here. He puts it very bluntly. He puts it very plainly. And he uses a very vivid metaphor. He says, for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God is more difficult than for a camel to crawl through the eye of the needle. Now, some people tried to explain that the eye of a needle referred to a tiny little gate in the wall of Jerusalem that was about four feet high, which opened after the main gate was closed at night. And so a camel couldn't pass through the smaller gate at night unless, of course, it was stooped down, had the baggage removed off its back, and then squirmed and wriggled, you know, uh, conceivably to get through this gate, this so-called eye of the needle. 
let me just say that there is absolutely no evidence for the existence of such a gate. So, I wonder if Jesus meant a literal needle. And make it a big sewing needle if you have to. You know, my mom used to have those big sewing needles, right? And I wonder if Jesus meant it in a literal way. That the eye that, you know, you could put that piece of string through. Now, again, at my age, and I'm trying to stitch up my ripped and torn hockey equipment, I struggle with trying to get that little string through there. It's a struggle, but I can still do it. But I'm wondering if Jesus, you know, is trying to make this huge, lumpy, humpy camel trying to squeeze through this eye of a needle. And then you get the picture the disciples got. Because they interpret Jesus' words correctly. Jesus says to them, it's impossible. The vivid contrast between the largest animal in the area at Jesus' time and the smallest opening represents what is humanly speaking impossible. It's impossible. And with man, this is impossible, but not with God. And when we understand that salvation is totally the works of God, every attempt to enter the kingdom on the basis of our achievement, of doing things on our merit, is absolutely futile. Apart from the grace of God, nobody can be saved. And they said, well, then who can be saved? Right? That's their, they're exasperated at this point. Who, who can be saved? You know, what, what rich man will ever make it if, if that's what riches do to you? course jesus said well with men it's impossible why is it impossible why do riches why does money why does wealth and affluence do uh, you know what does it do to make it impossible and it's clear from the context that riches and money and wealth and affluence tend to destroy the qualities that you must have in order to enter the kingdom of god they can destroy and again i use the word can they can destroy the childlikeness of life and you can see why Affluence creates concern for secondary values. Let me give you an example. Rich people are never worried about where their next meal is coming from. How many of you in this room are worried about where your next meal is coming from? I'd venture to say that nobody in good honesty could actually put up their hand. So, rich people are not worried about where their next meal is coming from. You know what they worry about? Do you know what I worry about? What's it going to taste like? Am I not right? What's it going to taste like? And what's the setting? The ambiance. <laughs> I'm glad you found that funny. <laughs> At least somebody does. Unless we're all feeling like heavy conviction and guilt and everybody's going, ouch. Just think about it. This is us. You're not worried about what you're going to eat for lunch. You're going to worry about what you're going to have. What is it going to taste like? Is it going to be McDonald's or Joey? Shameless plug. I hope I get a sponsorship. Here, right. Like, really? Rich people are not concerned whether they have a roof over their head or clothing that they wear. We're taken up in fashion. We're taken up in style. Preachers and sneakers. We're taken up with the core, right? Whether or not we're, the right mood is set, the lighting is perfect. 
They're not concerned about whether they worship God rightly or not. They're more concerned about whether the building pleases them aesthetically. Smoke and lights, strobes, strokes. Riches transfer their concern from elementary issues, the necessary things, where's my meal coming from, to secondary things. That destroys the simplicity of life. And furthermore, affluence actually destroys teachability. Because what it does is it creates a false sense of power and authority. The man who has power because of his money, the man or woman who has power because of their money begins to feel that they ought to be the teacher. I should teach. I don't need to learn. I already know. I know everything. Look where I am. This makes for arrogance. It makes for indifference, for insensitivity to the needs of others, for isolation, for the lack of concern. Again, affluence can gradually enslave those who are attached to it. It builds an increasing dependence upon comfort, upon the good life, until people reach a point where they can't give it up anymore. And we're owned by our possessions. And it's like an addictive drug. It truly is. Because we become addicted to things, don't we? Addicted to comfort, addicted to ease, addicted to Amazon. Did you hear me? We. We. This passage is talking to you and me. And therefore it destroys the responsive spirit which is ready and willing to follow the truth wherever truth is revealed. And this is what's happening to this rich young ruler. That is why Jesus said it's impossible for men but not with God. And that's the note of grace. That's where the grace of God can come in. That God can break that enslavement to riches and other things. And he does. Sometimes. When we are obedient. I heard a pastor speak of his congregation at a conference, and he mentioned that he had a number of wealthy people in his congregation. May I quote what he said? This was in the States. In regards to the context of a number of wealthy people in the congregation, he says that they are a trouble to me because they dabble in Christianity. Oh my goodness. That was stunning, and yet that's our culture today. We have everything we need, don't we? And so we add God to our lives like salt and pepper to a dish to give it some seasoning. And so as we look at the story a little bit more closely, the story of this passage is straightforward. It's, it's not about money. Don't read this and just think it's all about money. It's about the way to eternal life by doing the will of God, by simply putting God first. And when we put God first, because other things have our heart, and if they do have our heart, what, what, what happens? We're going to walk away sad. Jesus acknowledges how difficult it is for humans to attain this level of detachment from worldly stuff. <clears throat> and we need God's help to do it. Then Peter spoke up and he said, we had left everything to follow you. I love Peter. It's basically Peter's going, hey, doesn't that mean we're in? 
hey, Jesus, we've done it. We've forsaken all those things. You said to forsake, to follow you. And notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter. Instead, it's as if when Jesus speaks, he's saying this. It's almost like Jesus going, no, Peter, no, 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 no. There's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life, but I'll tell you this. Every sacrifice that you make to follow me will be rewarded by my grace because I'm God. I am a God of grace, and I bless those who follow me. And really, what Jesus does is he goes on to say, truly, I tell you, no one has left their home or their brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or feels for me, and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, there are many who will look at this passage of Scripture in Christianity, and, and this is where we get a prosperity gospel out of this. That say, you know, if you follow Jesus, you'll be rich. It doesn't really work that way. And I'm not sure that my definitions of riches would be considered having a hundred mothers. I think we can all say one's enough. No, no offense, dear. Right? Clearly, that's not what's being taught here. Following Jesus, living for Jesus will cost you, but it'll be worth it. The gains outweigh the losses. Any house or family or possessions that believers leave for Jesus in the gospel's sakes will not go unrewarded by God. God will bless his family. The body of Christ would be a place of love. When it comes to having relationship with God's people, I have experienced intimate, beautiful, loving, faithful relationships with many people who live all over the world. And have put up with so much more than what we have in our Western culture. And what a blessing. And God will meet your needs, your physical needs. And that you continue to follow him. He will meet those needs. You also notice that included in this, uh, in this verse is and persecutions. Some say it's a late addition. I'm just going to say, you know, let's say that Mark did include it. It would have actually comforted Mark's original readers, who he was writing his gospel to, who were believers in Rome, who suffered much persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. And this phrase would have been used as a comfort of, well, because nobody wants to be persecuted. None of us do. But it can have a purifying effect upon the church. It also can deepen our Christian relationships, the honor of suffering for the name of Jesus and the joy of knowing that those sufferings are a tool of continuing grace in your life, that those sufferings are meant to transform you, and that's a blessing. My first time going to the former Soviet Union was in 1991. And I went with my father and a, um, uh, another pastor from Calvary Temple, Jim Barber, at the time. Everything within me wants to step in front of this and talk to you, but I have to stay in the light. And I'll, uh, the number of stories that I tell repeatedly, the first one was I understood greet each other with a holy kiss and what that meant. So for those who are Slavic, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We get off the train and we get into a place and there's this big Baptist pastor. I'm talking, this guy was bigger than me. He was huge. And my dad 
was first, Jim Barber was second, I was third, and my dad had already prepped me and said, look at, the, they do this holy kiss thing, so just, I'm just telling you. And so the guy sees my dad, and they're so thrilled that we've come, we've come to preach, we've come to deliver Bibles, we've come to evangelize, and that's what we were doing, and this Baptist brother was so happy to see us. I mean, this guy is giant. He was like Goliath, and my dad's like this tall. And so he sees my dad and comes up to my dad and brat, grabs my dad's face and goes, Mwah! and I'm, I'm third in line. I know what's coming. I had time to think, but Jim's smarter than me. So Jim, what he does is goes, brat, which means brother. And he turns his cheek so the guy could plant it here. But Brat is much more smarter than Jim. And he grabs Jim's face, turns his head, and goes, Mwah! I just submitted. <laughs> and you wonder why I don't hug anymore. It was just, but then we're, we're there, and there was a, a group of young people from the city of Lviv, and they were going into the villages and the towns ahead of us, and they were singing, and they were doing poetry. They were inviting people to the theaters that we rented, where we would preach to them, where we would do altar calls, where we would give away Bibles, and like there was memories that just embedded in my head, and I remember doing altar calls, and with like three, four sermons being preached, and people would come, and I think it was Tricasi, I think it was, I have that in my diary where, I, and it's vivid in my mind, the altar call was given, and everybody responded. Everybody came forward to pray the prayer of salvation. Everybody came forward to get Bibles except for two people. And it was interesting how, for me, standing on the side of the stage and just looking out and just seeing those two people not respond. And we go back, and then and it was almost heartbreaking you know, because regardless of how many people came forward, there were still two people that didn't. You know what I'm saying? And so we started, uh, um, uh, we went out for dinner. And uh, it was where I had my first taste of beluga caviar. Poor Jim couldn't eat it. It was kind of funny to watch. But that was, that's a whole other story about the eggs popping in his throat. But uh, I won't go. And kvass soup. What's with kvass soup, Pastor Anatoly? Come on, that's a cold beer-like soup, just saying. Um, borscht is where you go. Anyway, we start worship, we have a time of worship, the, the, the youth group starts leading in worship and they start singing songs. And I start clapping and right away, my big brother, Baptist pastor, steps in, no, no, no clapping. And I'm going, well, come on. And in our fellowship, like in our country, we clap, we clap to this song. And, you know, at that time, it was, this is the day that the Lord had made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Okay, it's a little old school, but I'm talking 1991. And no, no. And he looks at me. And he says, our religion is a religion of sorrow. And I was, I was stunned. I was because my Western mind is saying, no, this doesn't make sense. Because that's not what Jesus talks about. What do you mean you're really? And of course, that's just staying in here. And because he's bigger than me, I'm keeping my mouth shut. And he begins to tell me of the persecutions that the church has gone through. And I remember vividly his story, stories, on how that we have to meet 
not in a building like this, but out in the forest. And of course, they were being spied on, and of course, the secret police would find out that they're meeting, and they would send in the water cannons. And the water cannons would come to where these people are worshiping, that's all, singing, listening to Scripture being preached, and they would see the water cannons coming in, and what they would immediately do is they put the children in the center, they put the women wrapped with their backs to the outside, and then the men would join arms and wrap themselves around the outside, and then the water cannons would come to try to disperse them and just hammer these people. Never mind the arrests, never mind the beatings, never mind the persecution, but I'll say something, that these people were tight. I didn't understand, I just listened. I wasn't in the position to correct or challenge, but I was watching years later as freedom started coming to the Soviet Union right at Glasnost, that there was a tightness, that there was a love for Jesus that I wish Western culture had. Was that because of persecution? I don't know. But without question, suffering was meant to transform them, and it did. The key to this whole passage is the very last sentence. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. So what's Jesus teaching here? Is he telling us that if we have money and wealth, that we have to give it away as this rich young ruler did? Do we actually have to divest ourselves and our fortune and take a vow of poverty in order to serve God? This passage had been interpreted that way for many years. Actually, for hundreds of years in the early church, Almost from the end of the first century, some men and women had understood it this way. They took a vow of poverty. They gave away everything and they became monks. They became nuns and hermits. Some of them gave up everything and went around as beggars. But did this mean that they were truly obedient in, in fulfilling the passage? No. Jesus says many who are first, apparently in giving up things, actually turn out to be last. You see, it's not the external things he's talking about here at all. There's plenty of testimony from the history of the church to the effect that this cannot be what he's talking about. Because these practices have often not produced even the semblance of spirituality. He's talking, rather, about the attitude that we have towards things. And this is the key. It's the attitude in which you assume that these things were given to you, not for your benefit alone, so that you don't, not so that you can have a bigger car or a finer home or a place in the country or a boat or whatever. That is not why money is given to you. It is given to you in order that you might invest it, employ it in the advance of the work of the one who gave it to you. In other words, you and I are stewards of God's affairs. A steward is of the things that is entrusted to you. And someday every one of us must give an account of what we've used it all for. Now, using it for a certain degree of your own enjoyment and pleasure is right as well. Paul says in his first letter to Timothy, he says, God has given us richly everything to enjoy. But that's not the only purpose of it. It's also used to the advancement of his work. If you have the attitude that the, uh, the things of God has given you belong to him and not to you, and if he takes them away and you don't feel upset, then you because you understand that they're not yours to start with. And if he wants to take them away and use them somewhere else, that's up to him. This is the attitude that Jesus is really trying to talk to us about. And here's the paradigm of his kingdom. 
as those who come with nothing and confess that they are nothing, who seriously seek and receive the grace that can only be found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Those are the ones who receive his honor. Those are the ones who receive his blessing. And I'd ask you today, what gospel do you preach to yourself? Not on Sunday morning, but on Tuesday morning, on Wednesday night, on Thursday afternoon. Husbands, what gospel do you preach yourself when your wife points out your sin, your weakness, or failure? What gospel do you preach to yourself when convictions come into your heart about maybe something you thought, something you said, something you did? You know, do you fight that or do you need to receive grace? Do you say to yourself, as this old hymn that pops into my head said, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And literally, personal Hopelessness is always a portal to hope. And the bad news must precede the good news. And the righteous don't run for help because they don't think they need it. So we understand who we are. And we understand this. And when, when we do begin to understand our world, what a difference it will make in our own life to hold things lightly for his name's sake, to understand that God has committed things to us, not that we might please ourselves, but that we might advance the cause that he has given us one of these days. And he says all the fronts, all the facades, all the excuses eventually are going to be stripped away. Many who are last, who apparently have not given much up at all, but because they have had the right attitude about their possessions, they're going to be first. And many who seemingly maybe have given up things... And they've gained the reputation of sacrificing for the cause of Christ. We'll be told to take the last seat because they really haven't given that much up all. It's our attitude. So I want to close today by simply reading Paul's words in 1 Timothy 6. Which is really an exposition of what Jesus has talked about in Mark. Timothy writes, he goes, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. Now remember... We're rich, just saying. Which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly, now look at God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good. To be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That's a great way to live. This guy's story should remind us that following Jesus requires a radical reorientation of our priorities. That we should make no other God before him. So, let me ask you this. Are there things in your life today that you need to put before God. Is Jesus the center of your life? Or like the rich young man, are you going to turn away and walk away if Jesus is asking you to follow him? Because the choices you make today will determine your tomorrow. And at the end of the day, we understand that the rich young ruler's dilemma. I think we all get it. I think we can certainly identify with his burdens. Because like him, most of us have many possessions more than what we need to live. And we know how concerned about all of our stuff tends to actually be a chain for us to our stuff. And yet more than that, we 
Don't we all know how risky a matter it can be to be met by Jesus when we let him speak to us, when we're obedient to him? And my guess is that we all identify with the rich young man's reserve, with his losses and his fears, the loss of power, the loss of control, the loss of possession if he was obedient. Maybe, maybe his possessions was his very identity. And I think it's easy to be tempted to confuse with what we own with who we are. Jesus invited the man to follow him. He laid out the conditions and the man walked away. Because the guy was grieved by the decision. We never hear from this guy again. But you have to wonder how the rest of his years went. So which way do you hear Jesus' words to the rich man? If you haven't heard it already, I, me being honest with you, this, this story of the rich man and Jesus challenges me. And I want it really to challenge all of us listening today. It's a story about wealth and what we do with all that we have. It's a story about what we give, about what we keep and why. It's a, it's a challenge to all that we may believe to be essential in life. A challenge to all we believe in all that we will teach our children about real security. It's about who we are and who we choose to follow or whether or not we choose to follow. And it's a radical invitation from Jesus. And it goes to the root of what we have and what we will relinquish in order to follow him. And regardless of everything else, there's always that invitation of grace. It's not that we just have to simply relinquish our stuff but it's an invitation to gain a passionate faithful life lived in community with Jesus and with others who will share the journey with us a gracious invitation rooted in God's possibilities for indeed with God all things are possible one day a rich man came to Jesus sought his counsel and Jesus presented him with a choice and that same choice comes to us almost every day in some form or another, it comes to each and every one of us every day. There's a moment in some very practical and unexpected ways when a choice is before us and without realizing it, something of our soul, something of our character, something of our being is at stake. You might even say that maybe the kingdom is at stake and we have to decide at that moment, yes or no. So, what's Jesus saying to you today? Stand with me, please. Father, thank you for searching these searching words from Jesus' lips. We see again how thoroughly he understands us and how well he knows us. I pray that we would be responsive to this word. Lord, That I thank you that into this world of utter impossibility complete inability that you came with your grace and you lived the life that we could not live that you died the death that we deserve to die that you defeated death as we would have been unable to and through you we find forgiveness we find acceptance we find righteousness we find eternal life remind us lord again and again that we cannot look inward for hope but that hope is found in you and you alone 